0: Hello and welcome to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week's podcast, Biases Against Risky Research. So a frequent worry is that our scientific institutions are risk averse and that they shy away from funding transformative research projects that are also high risk in favor of relatively safe and just sort of incremental science. So why might that be? Well, for this week's podcast, let's start with the assumption that high risk high reward research proposals are polarizing. Some people love them, but others hate them. It's actually not clear this is true. Uh, And in the newsletter, there's a link to at least one study that kind of looks at this and finds ambiguous results. But you know, it seems plausible. And for the purposes of this post, we're just going to sort of take take this as given. So this is true, uh, that High-risk, high-reward proposals are polarizing, and if our scientific institutions pay closer attention to bad information or bad reviews as compared to good information or good reviews, well, that could be a driver of risk aversion. So let's look at three channels through which negative assessments could have outsized weight in decision-making and how that could bias science away from transformative research. So let's start with individual reviewers how does the typical scientist feel about riskier research? Now, as far as I know, we don't have good data that's directly about how academic peer reviewers feel about high-risk, high-reward research proposals. There's some work on how academic scientists treat novelty at the publication stage, like when they're reviewing a, a, a journal article for whether it should be published. But there might be some big differences between how risky research is judged at the proposal versus the publication stage. And there's a paper by Gross and Bergstrom from 2021 that kind of develops that argument in more detail. But, you know, intuitively, after the research is done, you can see if the risk they took paid off. And so you may treat novel transformative research very differently when you're evaluating whether to publish it versus when you're deciding whether to fund it uh, and you don't know what the outcome is going to be. So in this podcast, I'm going to focus on work that's looking just at research proposals and to learn about the preferences of peer reviewers I'm going to look at Krieger and Nanda 2022, which provides some granular information about how working scientists in industry think about which kinds of pharmaceutical research projects they would like to fund. So Krieger and Nanda study this internal startup program at the giant pharmaceutical company Novartis. And this program was meant to identify and rapidly fund transformative breakthrough innovation developed by teams of scientists working inside Novartis. There were over 150 Novartis teams that submitted applications for the funding, and these were screened down to a short list of 12 uh, teams who pitched their proposals to a selection committee. Now, these pitches were made over video chat due to COVID-19, which meant that they could be viewed by lots of people at the same time. About 60 additional Novartis research scientists watched some or all of the pitches, and Krieger and Nanda got them to score each proposal on a variety of different criteria— and then to allocate hypothetical money to the different proposals. And what's particularly interesting for us is that we can see how scientists rated different aspects of a proposal and how that relates to their ultimate decision about what to hypothetically fund. So participants in the study rated each proposal on uh, five different categories. What was its transformative potential? For example, uh, you know how creative uh, and how non-standard it is is gonna be better. Second, what's the breadth of applicability and sort of, you know, what is the value proposition for this kind of research proposal? Third, what's the time scale between here and the first prototype? And if you can get it done within 18 months, that's better. Fourth, what's the feasibility or sort of the path to execution? And obviously in this case, the more feasible you judge it to be, the better. And fifth, uh, judge the team. Does the team have the sort of skill and the network to achieve what they've what they're proposing? So these different scores get aggregated into a weighted average that puts extra weight on feasibility and the quality of the team, but it puts the most weight on a proposal's transformative potential because, after all, that's what the program was set up to fund. So next, the study participants were asked, how much money from a hypothetical budget do you gonna do want to allocate to the different proposals that you've seen? Note, when they're doing this allocation, they can clearly see the weighted average of the scores that they gave on each criteria, so it's obvious which proposal you're supposed to get you know, give funding to if you strictly follow the scoring formula that Novartis prefers. And no surprise, Krieger and Nanda find that proposals with a higher score, well, they tend to get more hypothetical funding. But they also find all else equal, reviewers penalize projects that have greater variation among the different criteria. That is, when comparing two projects with the same weighted average, study participants give more money to a project if most of its criteria are sort of close and clustered around that overall weighted average. And they give less money if some of the criteria are way above the average and some criteria are way below. So that implies negative attributes of a project sort of count for more in the minds of a reviewer. Even if bad scores on some criteria are counterbalanced by higher scores on others, these kind of projects still get less hypothetical funding than less sort of uneven proposals. But we can actually be a little bit more precise. This bias against proposals with low scores on some dimensions and high scores on others is actually mostly driven by a particular specific kind of divergence. Proposals rated as having a high transformative potential, but low feasibility or timelines, they tend to be the most penalized relative to sort of their average score and what that would predict. That's consistent with peer reviewers themselves being a source of bias against novel projects. They can recognize a project as high risk, high reward. You know, high risk in the sense that it maybe takes a long time to get a prototype or the path to feasibility is low, but high reward in the sense that, hey, it's it's really transformative. But when they're asked which projects to give research funding to, well, they shy away from them in favor of lower risk but lower reward projects. Note, though, that this data is from industry scientists, you know, in the pharmaceutical sector. And it's possible that these guys are just different in their risk preferences from their academic peers. So interpret all that with caution. But let's next turn to some studies that are specifically about academia. So the previous discussion was about possible biases among individual reviewers, but most of the time research proposals are evaluated by multiple reviewers and then the scores across reviewers get averaged. And that system can introduce different kinds of problems. One way that averaging across reviewers leads to sensitivity to negative reviews is the fact that money for science tends to be tight which means only research proposals that receive a high average score tend to get funded. If a single negative review can pull your score below this funding threshold, well, then negative reviews may exert excessive influence. For example, proposals submitted to the UK's Economic and Social Research Council, the ESRC, are typically scored by three to four reviewers on a six-point scale, and usually only proposals that receive average scores above 4.5 make it to The stage where a panel deliberates on which proposals to fund. So if you get a score, uh, if somebody gives you a bad score that knocks you below 4.5, well, you're not probably going to get funded. Uh, Jerem and DeVries, 2020, look at about 4,000 ESRC research proposals made over 2013 to 2019, and they find 81% of proposals that receive an average score of 5.7 to 6 from their peer reviewers, 81% get funded eventually but only 24% of proposals with an average score of just 4.5 to 5. So that is, they just barely made it into this second stage. And that's to say, if you have three reviewers who love your proposal and they rate it the maximum score, 6 out of 6, it's going to get funded 81% of the time. But if you add a fourth reviewer and that guy hates this proposal, he gives it a 1 out of 6, well, then the average of you know, all four of them falls to 475 And now your probability of getting funded has dropped to just 24%. Of course, we could say that's a feature, not a bug, if negative reviews actually just spot serious weaknesses in research proposals. And we'll get to that. But before we do, we might want to first ask, is this scenario actually plausible in the first place? Could it really be the case that three people think a project is a six out of six, outstanding, and a fourth person thinks, no, it's one out of six, it's poor? If three people think a project is great, isn't it pretty unlikely that a fourth person would think the opposite of that? Well, this gets into the question of how consistent are peer review scores with each other, and that's itself kind of a large literature. But at least for this study, this sample of ESRC proposals, Jeremy DeVries find inter-reviewer correlations are actually very weak. Any particular reviewer's score is only a tiny bit predictive of their peer's score. And that means a score of one out of six it's less likely when three other reviewers rate the same proposal as six out of six, but it's not that much less likely than just random chance. Although, on average, it is not actually very common to get a one out of six. Just unconditionally, only 4% of reviewers give proposals a score of one out of six. So, it's true that one really bad review can substantially reduce the probability of getting funded, but that As we said, that doesn't necessarily mean the system isn't working exactly as it should, because maybe bad reviews notice serious flaws in the proposal that other reviewers miss. But even so, I think there are two reasons that this seemingly innocuous procedure, just get expert feedback and average it, can lead to excessive risk aversion for a funder. First, one problem is that scores are asymmetrically distributed. In Jeremy DeVries' data, the average score is 4.4, and more than half of reviews are actually a 5 or a 6. If you believe a pros proposal is really bad, it's feasible to strongly signal your dislike by giving that proposal a score of just one, the lowest. And that's 3.4 points below the average of 4.4. But if you really love a proposal, it's hard to signal that with your scoring. The best you can do is just give it a six out of six, which is just 1.6 points above the average. So when you average out people who really love and really hate a project, well, the haters have more leverage Over the final score as an aside you know you might think well maybe there's a greater scope for sort of uh, symmetrical feedback in the written comments but I'm just not so sure because in the data 25 percent of people give the maximum score of six out of six and that's meant to correspond to an outstanding proposal so if those six out of six scores are accompanied by glowing comments well it might be hard for a truly exceptional project to sort of stand out from the crowd second Low levels of inter-reviewer correlation imply that there's just a lot of randomness in the reviewing process. That could be bad for transformative research proposals if they're weirder, and that means that they tend to get more reviews than more conventional proposals. For example, a proposal that combines ideas from disparate sources might need more reviewers because you need to adequately vet each of those sort of different sources of this idea. And that could be a problem because in general, there's going to be more variation in the average scores of proposals that receive fewer reviewers. Let's take one example. In Jeremy DeVries' data, on average, about 25% of reviewers rate proposals as 6 out of 6. Outstanding. If you have a proposal that sits squarely in some given research niche, the panel maybe is going to feel comfortable if they just get two reviewers who are inside that niche and really understand it. And if you have two reviewers, the probability that you get uniformly outstanding reviews is going to be on the order of 25% times 25%, which is about 6%. But if you have a proposal that draws on ideas from multiple domains, maybe the panel is going to want to have more than one reviewer from each of those different niches. Suppose you end up with five reviewers. Well, now the probability that you get uniformly outstanding reviews is now on the order of 25% raised to the fifth power, which is just 0.1. As an aside, if you use Jerem and DeVries 2020's, uh, their paper's data on the distribution of reviewer scores, like what share give a six out of six, what share give a five out of six, and you also combine that with their data on the probability of winning a grant across different averages. So what's the probability you win if you have an average score of 5.5 versus 4.5 and so on? Well, I wrote a quick and dirty simulation that implies the average paper that gets 3 reviewers is going to get funded about 21% of the time, and the average paper with 4 reviewers gets funded about 18% of the time. Now, that's the case even though the underlying distribution of individual reviewer scores for each review is the same across both of these groups. And the difference, 21% if you have 3 reviewers versus 18 if you have 4 in this simulation is just entirely down to the higher variance in average scores in the three reviewer proposals which means a greater share of them clear you know are in the domain where they tend to get funded as compared to the four reviewer proposals where more of the uh, proposals end up with low average scores moving on the above problems show up in the first stage of the ESRC grant process which is when you solicit expert feedback and then take the average but in the ESRC, there's also the second stage where a panel comes together to debate the proposals, decide what to fund in some kind of consensus, and they use the peer review scores as an input into their decision. And as we see, you know, those inputs matter because, well, we think they matter since stuff that gets a higher peer review score tends to get grants more often. Anyway, something like this sort of deliberative process is also used to disperse most U.S. biomedical grants because NIH study sections, they come together and they discuss proposals with each other. Lane et al. 2022 conducts an experiment with the review of grants that documents another way that the review process could be sensitive to negative feedback. Lane and co-authors help run two different real genuine grant competitions for biomedical translational research. Uh, Between the two competitions, they get about 100 different research proposals, which they sent out to about 350 different reviewers who reviewed and scored proposals on a nine point scale. After reviewers rate a proposal, the experimental intervention takes place. Before submitting their scores, all of the reviewers are given an opportunity to revise their score before you know you do the final submission. But a subset of the reviewers are additionally shown information about the range of scores given by their peers, though in fact the ranges shown are experimentally manipulated, not necessarily the actual reviewer score from their peers. What Lane and co-authors want to see is how learning about what your peers scored a proposal does to your decision to revise your own score. And they find a general tendency for people to revise their scores in the direction of their peers. But this tendency is asymmetric. If you learn your peers all gave higher scores than you, on average, people choose to raise their own score by about 0.5. That's out of nine possible points, remember. But if you learn all your peers gave a lower score... On average people choose to lower their score by more like 0.8 that suggests that in an environment where peer reviewers can discuss and share their views more polarizing proposals will tend to get penalized as people tend to revise their views down more easily than up the difference with 0.5 versus 0.8 it's not a huge effect but it is pretty sticky across lots of different ways of analyzing their data so in this podcast I talked about three different papers that each illustrate a different way that the typical grant review process might be biased against high-risk, high-reward pro, uh, projects. Maybe be uh, reviewers themselves might not like research proposals that are high-risk, high-reward. Uh, maybe averaging peer review scores and using those to generate uh, consensus scores and then rating those against the threshold. Well, that could be biased against risky work if riskier proposals get more polarized reviews or they just even get more reviews. And lastly, if peers openly share and discuss their views, proposals that are more polarized might have consensuses that get weighted more to the downside rather than the upside. Now, this format where I talked about three different things from three different papers is not actually normally the way I like to structure posts or podcasts for new things under the sun. Normally, I prefer to look more closely at one specific claim and then try to find a set of papers that shed light on it from sort of different angles. For example, I have another podcast uh, called Conservatism in Science that looked at yet another potential reason for biases against novel research. In that case, it was because of the absence of expertise about really weird ideas that can confidently vouch for the weirdest ideas. But in that uh, podcast, we drew on several different papers. And for today's podcast, that wasn't possible, as I couldn't find different papers shedding light on the same mechanisms for risk aversion in science. Although, they're probably out there somewhere, and if you know any, feel free to email me, and I will update all this later. But there's also a meta reason for grouping together these three distinct mechanisms for biases against novel together. And that's because there's this widespread perception that the way we fund science is sort of too risk averse. And I think grouping all these things together provides sort of one larger explanation for how a risk aversion bias could survive in science. So before I get to that, one potential reason for the persistence of a risk aversion bias might just be that Protests notwithstanding, the people who matter actually like it this way. And they could be right. There might be good reasons for science to be risk averse, especially publicly funded science. For example, maybe long-run political support for funding science is imperiled by excessively embracing weird research that rarely pans out. And that certainly seems possible. And there certainly are people who use weird grants to different scientists as a weapon against sort of government spending in general, I mean like a, a rhetorical weapon. Like you should look at the uh, Golden Fleece Awards, which I have a link to in the thing, in the award uh, newsletter. But there's another possibility, and that is that we actually do want to get rid of risk aversion, but we just don't know how. And for that possibility to hold, there can't just be some single big feature of our grant review process that's just obviously and unambiguously leads to excessive risk aversion. Because if there was, we could just change that process. And we wouldn't wait for an academic study. It would be obvious that's where the choke point is. You know, Much of how we have chosen to structure science isn't historically guided by evidence anyway. But what if risk aversion stems from lots of little biases that just cumulatively add up? What if each source of bias individually has effects that are too small for just intuition and casual observation to detect? Though a well-designed study with lots of data hopefully like you think the ones we've looked at today, would be able to sniff them out. In an environment when we haven't traditionally designed our scientific institutions with much evidence from academic study of science, it seems to me that this kind of bias, where it's distributed across lots of small things that are individually kind of hard to casually detect, this kind of bias could persist a very long time, even if we really did wish we could get rid of it. Thanks for listening. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation and accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.